The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us one last time in prison is my older sister, Maddie Deutsch. (laughs) The only thing better than being your sister is being in prison with you as your sister. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, just like when we were growing up. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> prison, oh, <no. laughs> prison our, our childhood home what's the difference right oh mom and dad might be listening to this episode i take it i take it all back yeah our therapists might be listening too and you know <laughs> uh we are in minute 84 now which starts with the duke's car chasing the crew in the cab and ends with the cab going over the 69th street bridge not the 59th Street Bridge. Um, and indeed, here is the 69th Street Bridge that we have heard so much about during the movie, the fictional 69th Street Bridge, because there is no 69th Street Bridge. And of course, this is not any actual bridge in New York City like every other location in this movie. This is actually the Chain of Rocks Bridge in St. Louis, which crosses the Mississippi River uh, to connect St. Louis with something called Chowto Island. Sorry, Missourians, uh, if I mispronounced that. It was actually a part of Route 66. And the movie bought this bridge for the incredible sum of $1 Woo! from the government. And they gave it back to them for the same amount when the production was over so that there wouldn't be any liability on the government's part in case anything bad happened while they were filming the movie. Hmm. So I have a question. Um, I have a couple of questions, actually. So... Uh, first, I think that they chose to call it the 69th Street Bridge because it doesn't look like the, the, any existing New York bridge, right? So they had to, you know... I do, guess so. Do. I mean, in this in the draft script, it was the GW Bridge mm. that they were going over, and, and mm. um, then once they got to the shooting script, he changed it to this mythical 69th Street Bridge. Um, I mean, they didn't film any of the movie in the city anyway, uh, so... I mean, they could have called it the 15th Street Bridge, and like, who the hell cares? I don't know. It's, I just—it's strange that they went with the f- name of a fake bridge. Did, well, I mean, it's possible that they were implying that you know there had been further development of Manhattan before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could work. Did you guys talk about the map at all in your prior minutes? Uh, yeah. But what? But uh, go ahead. Well, how how did somebody get to the end of the bridge and then get shot? I have. I'm having. Okay. They need a map. You need a map to get over the bridge that's mined. They have a map that they got from somebody who made it to the other side of the bridge and then got shot. How did the map get back to Manhattan if the person who made it to the other side and took the notes got killed? Did he put it in a paper airplane and send it back right before he got shot? Molly, can you help me remember? I know we discussed this specific point and we came up with a couple of theories. Do you remember what they were? Well, I remember that one of the things we had theorized that actually he had left a map before he left. 
to say, if I happen to make it, here's a way out. So there were maybe either he had memorized where he needed to go. Because obviously he got intel somehow, right? Because, I I mean, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, if you practically... Somebody has to give you the information because, like, if you screw up, you really screw up and you know, no one's going to know. So I don't know that they've ever been really clear how he got the information and cobbled it together. But I always presume there was uh, either he memorized it and ran across and, you know, was successful until he wasn't. Um, or he just went ahead and, and left the information behind before he left. Or had a copy. He brought one with him and made a copy that he left with brain. Right. Yep. Okay, see, I had thought that he had assembled the map, like, he, on his way over. But maybe yeah, I, that's what I always had thought, too. And, and, and as, <laughs> as I've been talking about a lot about this week, it wasn't until I started really looking into this movie and discussing it with Molly and our guests that I started, like, it just doesn't make sense. Because you're right, the map would never be able to get back to Brain that way. Yeah, so how did he come up with the map ever? That's the first question. Assuming it's a he, maybe it was a she. But then the second thing is, that how do you mine a bridge like you 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 can mine like dirt or like water but to have hidden mines in a concrete decked bridge they'd have to like (laughs) like cut open the concrete put the mine in and then like put the concrete back and that seems like a lot of effort that was like uh in rather than just like put like some razor wire or something Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, but I, I mean, I'm I'm not a mine expert, so I, I apologize anyone listening if I'm if I don't know what I'm talking about here. But a mine has to be set off usually by applied pressure. If you're putting a mine underneath cement to hide it, would something even passing over that be able to create enough of a pressure through the cement to even trip the mine? Like, you know, if it's water, you're stepping directly on it. If it's under dirt, it's probably a very soft, thin layer of dirt on top of it. Well, I'm a doctor, not a mine expert. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I happen to be a motorcyclist. And, you know, there are sensors by traffic intersections that that, uh, some of them are weight sensitive to, like, decide when the light should change, you know. And those are the ones that you get stuck at on a motorcycle forever and you have to run the red light. But some of them are not um, weight. They're like static electricity, flux capacitor, you know, San Dimas high school football kind of stuff that makes it work. And and um, so they could have put like radio sensors or something into them and then that's how they would go off. Hmm. Hmm. I always presume there was some sort of motion detection because it's the future. Yeah. I just, mm-hmm. you know, it seems that these things go off around the cars. So I always presume that there was something that they were positioned around the vehicles and that there would be some level of vibration that would set them off. But I mean, I'm making that shit up, you know, just, on, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying there? I, I don't really have something that's necessarily like, within the plot or scientifically correlated to that. And why didn't they just blow up the bridge? Like, Hmm. why do they still have bridges um, going into the city that are not like, I don't think the 69th street bridge is being used to transport prisoners or maybe they do use it. We don't really know how they get them in and out. Right. 
I, I mean, that's that's one of the many mysteries of this movie that has never really been explained how they are bringing the prisoners into the prison. Um, but if bringing them over the bridges makes no sense because obviously the U.S. police force would have a map of where the mines are, but if you just accidentally take one step to the right by mistake or something like that, you're risking killing the guards, you're risking killing the prisoners as you bring them in. So the bridges, even if the bridges don't make sense as a way of getting the prisoners in, if they, Although, they, they could, they really should have just knocked down all the bridges. But if Molly's theory is correct that it's some kind of motion sensor, maybe there's just an on-off switch. And they say, flip the switch and disarm the bridge. We've got to take a load in. But it doesn't look like there's a clear path. I mean, there's junk cars all over the bridge. Right. Yeah. I don't it, know. It's, it's one of the many things that we've talked about. It's just like, you know what? Just don't worry about it. <laughs> the movie doesn't explain it. Don't worry about it. And we, and we see, you know, we've been hearing about these mines all movie. And we, at right near the end of this minute, we do see finally one of them go off. And, I mean, the car trips it as it goes. It, it explodes, like, on the left side of the car and doesn't appear to do anything to the car. I mean, it clearly set off the mine, and it clearly had no effect on the car, though. Right. Yeah, I don't know if it just was a timing thing, that they just didn't hit it quite right. Because these don't seem to be very powerful mines, either. Or I guess their area effect seems very small to me. Yeah, it's it's not a big explosion, and um, which doesn't quite fit with what's going to happen in a future minute. But no. in, this, in this particular minute... <laughs> right. Not not much really happens from this mine. I mean, it sounds like you need a demolitions expert on your team, some or in some capacity. <laughs> <laughs> so the Duke is following them. He is alone. He has decided to not have any of his henchmen join him for some reason in the car. Uh, story reasons, I guess. And I don't know how the Duke got behind them because. At one point, he is driving perpendicular and underneath them earlier in this minute. They are going over like an overpass, and the Duke passes directly beneath them going like, you know, let's say north while they're going west. And not long after, the Duke's following behind them. So movie car directions, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I think that... Without really thinking too hard about it, I think the implication is is that he's taking some kind of a shortcut. Mm. You know? Although, mm-hmm. when you look at that, it's like, you guys seem to be going in completely opposite directions. Right. So, you're like, how did that happen? But it's not a bad thing. I mean, the presumption is, is if he... If they actually set off the mines, right? I mean, I don't know how many mines there are, but I would think like it's great to follow through because if they set all the, or most of the mines off, then that obviously you know lowers your chances of getting hit with a mine because it's already gone off. Right. So we just, they don't seem to be, you know, every three feet mine because he's able to, you know, dodge and weave. So it's not like someone did a really efficient job of mining the bridge. Like if you really want to make sure that you did a good job, you'd probably mine a little more frequently and maybe on both sides of the bridge instead of just say one side of the bridge. Well, that's another good point. I mean, if they keep the bridge up and they don't destroy the bridges and they decide let's mine them to prevent people from coming, why are they placed at random intervals far apart from each other? I mean, this is it's not a war zone where you're trying to trick 
the opposing armed forces into tripping a mine. It's a prison that you don't want people to escape from. Why not just take a hundred mines and line them all up in a row straight across the bridge? So you just, otherwise you're inviting the prisoners basically to try to get across. Well, then there's no climactic scene on the bridge. <laughs> I, you know, why, 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 why didn't, you know, red and gold squadrons just fly right to the thermal exhaust port yes. instead of going through this trench? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we missed at the beginning uh, enough to get well earlier on in the minute. Um, one thing about the Duke's car, Molly, I can't remember because it was so long ago. But did we notice when we talked about his car when it first showed up that there was the tinsel hanging off of the rear fin on his trunk? I was thinking about that too, and I don't know that we either saw it or called it out because I don't remember talking about that before. So the car has gotten even more awesome now because he's got a long tinsel hanging off of the rear fin. Oh. Somebody got festive. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Maddie, of course, uh, you uh, feel free to give any of your comments you want to on this most awesomest of movie cars. Well, there's a lot. I mean, it's got it's got uh, like uh, like some kind of, you know, airbag suspension thing that allows it to, you know, raise and lower. Right. And, uh, I mean, the chandeliers, you know, uh, uh, those are some durable chandeliers, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's some pretty crazy driving that's going on and they're, you know, the nothing's flying off of them and the, the shafts are remaining connected to the, to the fender, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. That's, you know, that's no, some like uh, lamps plus, you know, that's real deal. <laughs> you know? This is not some Ikea bought. Uh, yeah, exactly. Here. Yeah. Well, that does lead me to a question for you, Maddie. And, and we've asked this of previous guests. If you were to be the Duchess of New York, what kind of a car would you be driving? Wow. That's a tough call. So this is basically I would be dropped into that universe in that day. Yes. And you and it would like if you were in charge like the Duke is basically. What would what would be my ride? Yeah, that mm-hmm. day. And am I me or am I like kind of like like am I kind of like a nerdy like you know brain type person or am I like no, it's you're, you. Like a, you're you you're you for whatever <laughs> reason you like, did something wrong in 1997 and you end up in Manhattan prison and you rise to the ranks to to lead a, a large gang uh, the 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 Duchess the the Duchess. The Dutch. I just combined our last name. The Duchess of New York. Yeah, I mean that's what people used to call us, right? Yes. When we were, you know, hey, dude, Duchess. Our, dude. And they would butcher right. our last name. First day name. of school Ooh. is always murder, right. you know, Madeline Dutudich. Right. Oh Jesus. Um, um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Maybe a VW bus. Oh. A VW bus would be would be fun. Um, yeah, I think that that would have been that would have been a good fit, or maybe the Bluesmobile. Mm. <laughs> uh, 19, 1970 I believe it was a 1970 Dodge Monaco that'd be fun to see yeah. the Blues Brothers dropped into Manhattan prison oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a good like like a crossover Christmas special yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the cab Snake's got a little bit of Bo and Luke Duke in him uh, <laughs> first get on the bridge uh, Brain tells him to go for it and he goes for it jumps that car right over 
another car to get onto the bridge. Nice driving, Snake. So among all his other talents, he's also a stunt driver. Well, and there was conveniently a ramp there. Yes. Which is what, you know, always happened in the, in the, in the Dukes of Hazard too, you know? Exactly. Oh no, we're going to, we're going to crash into Jefferson Creek. Oh, there happens to be a ramp of gravel right there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and as they're on the bridge, and this actually started right in the, the waning seconds of yesterday's minute, but we've got our next song uh, playing here in this uh, minute. Uh, remember, everyone, we were, we were talking about the soundtrack. We're talking about the 2000 Remastered Edition, and uh, this song is called 69th Street Bridge. Uh, and, uh, Matty, you uh, are a musician in your spare time. Uh, what are your thoughts on the soundtrack for this movie of its all of its 80s synth awesomeness? You know, I did not realize. And so I rediscovered this movie. I mean, I hadn't watched this movie since childhood. And then I think about five years ago, um, I was like, hey, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. So I'm going to watch it. And that's when I figured out that John Carpenter had done the soundtrack. Right. And I had no idea, you know, up until that point. Um, I think it's an awesome soundtrack. It's very like, um, you know, the synths of it are very like of the day, you know, it's like very in the moment. It was like really cutting edge synth stuff that he used to make this soundtrack. And right at the end of the minute, Molly, we can add to our count. The Duke did (laughs) two quick eye twitches. Uh, it, we have had to wait 17 minutes of movie time since we last saw a Duke eye twitch. And we get two of them in rapid fire right at the end of this minute. Awesome job. And he's not even facing him. <laughs> he's in no. the car. No, he's in the car. There's nobody even around. Just the, just the mere thought just makes him twitchy. <laughs> yeah, at this point, he's, he hates Snake so much that he's just, just thinking about him has the eye going. I will say, going back to the car, I love that you can hear that in the sound... I was going to say the soundtrack, but but really, like the um, the tinkle of the chandeliers as he turns the corner. Mm. I just love that. Yeah, that's good foley work. Mm-hmm. It really is. So I, I wanted to pose this. Uh, I, I have a ten and a seven year old that I think I've mentioned in the past, and Maddie has a two year old. Uh, I wanted to get Maddie's opinion here because it's become a big thing in. My house lately about kids and R-rated movies. Uh, my boys, Molly, have been started bugging me more than a year ago. When can we watch our first R movie? When can we watch? Our first <laughs> movie? And I was like, ah, I don't know. And then I started thinking, well, you know, when I was their age, Maddie and I were definitely watching rated R movies unsupervised. I might add, uh, pretty much just put on HBO and watch whatever the hell we wanted. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and. I finally, you know, and, and my wife, not not as into allowing the kids to watch the R movies as much as I am. And I finally, a few months ago, I showed my older son, uh, and he was uh, still nine at the time, actually. I showed him Die Hard as his mm. first R movie. I decided, well, you know, it's, it's fairly tame as R movies go. You know, a lot of, you know, cursing and a couple of bloody deaths, but it's still pretty tame. And he liked it a lot. Uh, so then... Uh, the younger son, who was seven, was like, well, when do I get to watch one? Well, well, you know, we made your older brother wait till he was nine. I don't know. And so finally, uh, I, 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 I gave in and I, I got my wife to agree. And uh, we showed them Predator. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, again, lots of cursing, couple of pretty gnarly deaths, but still, as far as our movies go, you know, fairly tame, and they loved it. And so we showed him another Schwarzenegger movie. We went with The Running Man. Mm. Um, after those three movies, however, um, I've been shut down a bit. Uh, I don't know that Allison's 100% uh, too keen on any more our movies at this time. Um, and in fact, when I suggested letting them see this movie so that I can maybe get their thoughts and make a fun bit about it on the show... Uh, Allison's specific quote was, are there boobs and do any heads explode? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Fair questions, though. Fair (laughs) questions to ask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in addition to anyone listening, you know, chiming in on on Facebook, you know, Maddie, your kid is only two, so you still have quite a while to, to consider this. But, you know, have you put any thought yet into... R-rated movies uh, when when the time arises. I mean, you know, sort of. I mean, right now I'm like I'm excited that my kid pooped in the potty this morning. You know, so, um, so that's you know that's kind of where my barometer is right now. You know, um, I, I I feel like uh, if I could have like a uh, uh, I feel like my ladder would be probably like uh four letter words would be the first layer that i would allow to open up mm-hmm. and and then the boobs would be the second layer and i i don't know if under boobs like if boob is a metaphor for not actually just a actual boob exposed but like innuendo and adult situations mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and then um i think that heads exploding is probably going to be something that like i don't even know that i'm going to introduce her to um i'll let her kind of find her way there i i, I you know i i don't know that i'm like not super into like the current crop of like head exploding stuff and i kind of feel like the world that we grew up in with like die hard and i feel like it's a little bit of a different world i'm basically identifying myself here as a big square you know but <laughs> I feel like it's kind of a different world and it's like kind of when we would watch something like Die Hard, we know it was like absurd, you know, like goes, I don't think people think it's absurd anymore. And it's not, it actually happens. So, um, I don't know. I mean, talk to me in, in five or six years, you know, but, um, I, I really am not particularly concerned about language. Um, and then boobs, I don't know. I mean, like sex, no, but like, I don't know boobs and adult situations i don't know talk to me in a few years i don't want child services to come to my house either (laughs) anyone listening to child services who works there uh uh, this was all just a parable none of this actually happened Uh, i I think Uh, you gotta i think you gotta fuck up a lot more to get cps called on you (laughs) just saying well, yeah. So even like, and it it's it's it doesn't even have to be necessarily our movies. Like the Hunger Games are PG thirteen movies, and our older son really wants to watch the Hunger Games movies, and we actually are not letting him watch those, even though he's seen these few R movies. Uh, and and you know, my wife's thought is, you know, that has kids killing other kids, mm-hmm. and so even though it's not rated R, the context, you know, as opposed to like a Die Hard where it's just 
you know, one guy spewing one-liners while he kills the bad guys, or, you know, a predator, there's an alien in the jungle hunting some army guys. You know, the context of kids killing other kids, yeah, PG-13, but, you know, they're too young to get the message of what that movie is saying. Mm-hmm. Whereas Die Hard, there is no message. It's just, you know, Bruce Willis kicking ass. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, you know, Eric, the era, the era that we grew up in, <coughs> we pretty much did whatever we wanted. And, like, there was, like, no, you know, you know, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, here's $3, come home when the sun goes down and, and come home with all of your limbs still attached, you know? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, everybody knew the, like, theater where you could sneak in and watch an R-rated movie at age 13. You know, you buy the ticket to see, like, you know, Fantasia or whatever, and then you just sneak into the other theater. And um, Mine was I bought a ticket to see Quicksilver with a friend, but we went into the Delta Force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. And so... Or, or like you would go with like a like like uh, Tom Kokoris took all of us underage. He was like seventeen. He was like the kid in the neighborhood who was like, you know, fifteen feet tall and was seventeen. And so he was our adult <laughs> right. guardian to like go see all these you know ridiculous R-rated movies. And um, I don't know. I feel like we turned out okay. So the question is like the permissiveness in which we grew up in. Is that something we need to get back to in movies um, and and other kind of cultural things that are now more limited to kids? Or has the kind of societal context changed so much that exposing kids to certain elements in the current environment actually is, is, is not as good as it was when we saw it because we had the perspective that things were like absurd and not real? I don't know. Molly, do you have any nieces or nephews or anything that are of certain age that this uh, ties into? I do. I've got three nephews. Um, I think the oldest is 15, 16 at this oh, point. Okay. So and, right. um, but they're, the other two are, are much younger. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something. I think my in-laws are far more restrictive than I think I would be. However, I think that, you know, I resonate a lot with, you know, your, you, you meaning Eric and Allison, your decision-making in terms of, I think an R, even though there's an R rating and the R itself isn't changed, I think the content that makes an R is very different from what it was in say 1986, 87 mm. to what it is now. And there's a whole lot of, I think, really adult, you know, I mean, I think of when you brought up Hunger Games, like I wouldn't let a seven-year-old watch Hunger Games because that to me would be frightening. I mean, that's a that's a really like intense dystopian reality. We were talking about, you know, kids who are pulled away from families and parents and basically put into like a gladiatorial ring for the entertainment of society, you know, in a totalitarian regime. And that's just like, that's a lot. That's a whole right. hell of a lot. That's a lot for an adult, I think, to take on a, on a certain level. So I, I think, you know, Alien or Predator or Die Hard has got, I think, a, you know, like, it's, it's a lighthearted fancy of killing people in, you know, <laughs> in kind of a nonsense sort of way. And I think even the, the violence is a lot more realistic. The, you know, the sound is a lot more realistic. Just even think of the Foley and this movie as good as it is in comparison to, 
you know, say people getting, you know, blown up now or seeing a head on a spike now. I mean, we've got even the horror movies are are far more uh, intense. Oh, yeah. You know, you think of like Saw or uh, like The Purge and, and it's just it's it's a different game now, you know, and, and how we've evolved technologically and, and how we tell stories. So I think it's a um, I think it isn't even so much about the ratings anymore it's about the content itself and mm. whether that's something that you know is okay i mean i don't even want to say it's okay but you know are you okay with your child imbibing that you know because i don't know if there's any like you know some people might argue some ethics around that but i think it's really just like is your kid in a particular maturity level going to be okay to take this in. And sometimes we just don't know too, you know, we right. presume they're going to be cool with it. And then all of a sudden they're like up in the middle of the night and then they got questions and shit gets weird. So, you know, you, we also don't know, I think as adults too. And we sometimes, you know, that's part of the, uh, it, it's sometimes it's a soft science. <laughs> so yeah, I think that you, yeah. you've got a good idea behind it. Yeah. I agree with what you said about the kind of realistic, you know, hitting closer to home. I mean, I think the two movies that were probably the most traumatizing for me as a child were The Day After and Red Dawn. Mm. And both were like, you know, somewhat apocalyptic movies um, about in, uh, like 100% realistic, like totally no fantasy component to them. Uh, I mean, like whether or not a bunch of kids could like steal a bunch of grenade launchers <laughs> and, you know, d beat like the Russians is, like, but you know, they were realistic um, movies that were like absolutely potential scenarios in the, the political environment of the eighties. And they gave me nightmares for years. Um, whereas like, yes, more like fantasy driven movies from the era didn't really phase me at all. Yeah, I think that the day after scared me more than anything else I watched as a kid. Yeah, I think I saw Phantasm when I was like nine, and it was oh. like, whoa, that was wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Not at nine. Oh. Yeah. No, that definitely was like, and even at the time, I was like, yeah, I really shouldn't have watched that. That was fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Do you guys have any other thoughts on this particular minute? Not I. Not I. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your perspective. And, and it's been delightful to have also verification that, you know, Eric came from somewhere. <laughs> you can vouch for him. <laughs> he's, he's a living, breathing creature. I can, I've been to his house. It was an honor to be part of this. I'm, I'm, I'm honored uh, that uh, I got these three minutes of fame. So thank you. Onward. Yeah, onward and upward. Uh, I just want to give a little shout out to Brad Mendenhall, who is our, our our producer, and he just like takes care of everything. And he's basically like an altering vehicle in life. And he has shit that comes up and he just like keeps on rolling. And he just does a great job for us. So I just want to give Brad a thank you for that. Uh, as far as us, you can follow Mendenhall. us on Twitter. Mendenhall. <laughs> And you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Also, we have a, a sweet Facebook group called Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. <laughs>